Welcome to Ruben's Brews Sight Glass. I'm Adam Robbings. And I'm Matt Lutton. And today we uh, took a trip up to Bellingham to see one of our favorite breweries, uh, Chuckanut Brewing. Um, Will and Mari Kemper, um, as you'll hear in this, uh, this interview, they uh, do a lot of talking. It was hard for us to get, get in edgeways, and they're so much fun. I've known them f- for a long time now. Um, they were very f- friendly and, and helpful when we first opened the brewery um, back in 2012. But Chuckanut Brewing um, opened in 2008 back in uh, just before the re- the recession started so they've um they've now been open like a, a dozen years which in craft terms is uh, is a is a long time a long time and uh, will is actually um uh, has got an amazing uh, history in the industry uh, of almost a quarter over a quarter of a century now and uh, he's he's almost a legend a complete legend yeah they so chuck and Nut, they focus on brewing brewing lagers um they uh have won uh they were the first brewery to win the great american beer festival for for only lagers lager beers um i.e not not ales um they're amazing lager brewery and and as we talk about on the podcast we'd like to see some of their their lagers in cans selfishly then it's kind of interesting because because they are a lager brewery when they opened in 2008 um ipas were just starting to get that crest of domination in the in the industry so they had to really educate people around the importance of, of lagers and and what lagers can bring in the context of an industry that is now seventy percent IPA, which makes it a very, a very um, kind of hard hard proposition and unique uh, unique for them. And in the industry, uh, people have always been asking us, and we ask um, other people in the industry as well, like, what's coming next after IPA? What's the next IPA? What's the next uh, beer style that's really gonna um, take off? And for many years now, at least three, four years, people. The response to that has usually been lagers. Uh, lagers are going to be the next thing that take off. But um, whereas we've seen maybe some green shoots of of, uh, of growth in, in in lagers, IPA is still by far the dominant dominant beer style. Different types of IPA, uh, whether it's hazy, we've seen you know, black white IPAs come and go. We've seen uh, brute IPAs come and go. We've seen fruit IPAs. Uh, come and largely go, I think, you know, they still have a, a, a time and place. Um, but all while through the, this IPA sort of evolution, most people in the industry have been talking about lagers being the, ne- the next big thing. And we've, we've, I think last year for us was the first year that those green shoots actually started growing into something a little, little larger than that. I think um, Al Pilsner, um, which is one of the top three selling pilsners in the, in Washington State, um, really got a lot of a lot of um, growth last year. It was up seventy percent in stores. In our tasting room, it was up a similar amount as well. And that's despite in the tasting room us having multiple lager options last year for the first time um, in a very consistent way, whether it be a Hellas, a, a Dunkel, um, a Mertzen, an Oktoberfest. Uh, Mexican lager, Vienna lager. So we're really seeing ourselves as brewers like lean into to lagers a lot more. I think we're seeing the industry go in that direction as well. Yeah, we uh, spoke in a previous episode about lagers specifically that, and it was actually one of our uh, brewers, uh, James, mentioned that the actual 
most popular beer style in the world is lager. You know, we get kind of siloed in craft beer thinking that IPA is the end all and be all just because it's the biggest seller for us. But when you think about the wide world, it's pale lagers. And Will brings it up in the episode that when they, when he first started brewing at Thomas Kemper, he was bringing out styles of beer that had color to them, had flavor to them. He was fighting against the pale lagers of the world, and he struggled then making ales uh, and getting some education into the marketplace, both with the consumers and with the accounts. And then it kind of comes full circle when he opens Chuck and Nut, and uh, his obsession at the time and remains is making some of the greatest lagers in the world. He was fighting against the ales and the IPAs of the world. Um, something that I really admire about him is that he has the tenacity and uh, the strength to stick to his beliefs. He has ideas about what tastes really good, and he's been ahead of his time twice. And we've seen the market come around to him. And I think, you know, everybody in the industry here and plenty of beer drinkers in the Northwest recognize Chuck and Nut as a leader and we love their beers. And I'm excited to see what happens next for them as loggers gain more prominence. Yeah. So, so with that, let's um, head to the podcast. It was a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to listening to it again. Enjoy. So thanks, Will and Mari. We're here at Chuck and Nut Brewery. So thanks for hosting oh, us. Oh, anytime. Cool. Thanks for yeah, inviting us, Adam. <laughs> thanks for inviting us, yeah. <laughs> um, so perhaps we can just start with um, you running through your background, like how we got, how you got to uh, opening Chuckin' Up. Well, this is my part because I love the history. <laughs> um, we started Thomas Kemper Brewery back in 1984 on Bainbridge Island, Washington, across from Seattle. And um, people ask, well, what was the name Thomas Kemper? Our people, uh, partners that we asked to join us were the Thomases. So it was Thomas, and then it was Kemper, and it was a mythical character. And uh, we started, and we were the hub of craft brewing in America at the time, because there were six of us all within a very close uh, range, uh, you know, territory. And you're talking about Hub, Washington State. Uh, it was Washington State, but it also was the Widmer Brothers in Portland, Oregon. Okay. So there was Red Hook, Grant's Ales, and Yakima. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hale's Ales at the time he was up in Colville. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we were on Bainbridge Island, and then Pyramid was down in um, uh, southern Washington. And what was the sixth one? Oh, the Widmer Brothers. Yeah, so there well. were six of us. And um, it was an exciting time for craft beer, you know, but we didn't have any equipment uh, for small breweries like we do now. It was all this big stuff. Needless to say, we moved it to Pulsebo almost a year later because we just needed more space. And then we ended up leaving Thomas Kemper and going over to the East Coast because Will had a non-compete. Uh, it was for three years. And um, we ended up, the only place we could brew was somewhere outside the West, the okay. Western United States, because we couldn't brew where Thomas Kemper was available, and it was in Alaska, California, Oregon, Montana, um, Colorado, Washington State, of course. What, so year, was, what year was that? That was in 89, okay. mid-89. 
And then uh, Will's uh, first position on the East Coast was with a group called Weeping Radish in Durham, North Carolina. And he helped them put in a system in Virginia Beach, actually, uh, that was called Fest Hall. That place didn't last very long. (laughs) (laughs) And then... we went to Dock Street. Uh, we'll started working at Dock Street in Philadelphia, and we actually moved to Philadelphia. And um, it was the first uh, brew pub in a high rise, which Will can tell oh, wow. you interesting stories about the, yeah, the it was, it was, engineering issues and something. Yeah, like it was that. right downtown Philly, and the building I think is about 30, 35 stories. Oh, wow. uh, and so trying to figure out how to deal with um, you know, affluent and, and raw materials is an interesting issue. Yeah, and not only that, but the stacks and you know, how the, all that kind of stuff happened. But did, did you have to have the stack <clears throat> that like, comes back inside Do itself to what like, it reduce the aroma? Um, uh, as far as it's, um, uh, no, no, we didn't have that uh, because what happened was that, uh, that the, uh, exhaust both from, because it was a steam boiler because I'm very keen on low pressure steam to the brewery process. Now, low pressure though has to be reduced from high pressure. You, You can't reasonably operate just a low pressure boiler. So what happens here is you, you have steam and you have also um, exhaust. And so there are these pipes. I don't know how long they were, you know, with fans and such, but these pipes, extend, you know, off the top of my head, they might have had to go 100, 200 feet for a suitable exhaust location. Oh, wow. A bit like it to the top of the roof? No, to no, the wow. side. So to the wow. side. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, then how they came out the side and, you know, and, yeah. you know that was an issue. And too. at the time, Will was very young, um, in his early 30s, and it's a union city, Philadelphia, very strong union city. He could not lift a hammer, a screwdriver, nothing. And he was used to putting, hobbling together his, you know, breweries and such. (laughs) So he was like, and then they didn't believe him when he told them he is a chemical engineer by training, University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, But they still didn't, you know, he had to really convince them that he knew what he was talking about. So that was a, such an interesting project because of that. And then he went down, he got hired, he was a consultant by this time. He got hired uh, by the people who were putting in um, uh, Capital City Brewing in Washington, D.C. And he went to the Fest House in Virginia Beach that he had put in and took that equipment and took it down to <laughs> D.C. And that was an interesting project. Then after that, it was Lowell, Lowell Brewing in Lowell, Massachusetts. And by then, the non-compete was up. Our daughters had graduated middle school. And we moved to Bellingham, where all our Bainbridge Island friends were, thinking we would start a brew pub here in 93. By that point, there were a couple here. But um, we got here, and it just wasn't working out. So then um, he started working with a group uh, out of Oregon called Beers Across America. And it was this where they would raise funds with they ra- raise the funds, start a brewery, and then they would get that brewery going, but raise funds to start the next brewery. So he, it was Aviator Ales in Woodenville, Norwester Beer in Portland, Oregon. Um, it was uh, Orange County Brewing in Orange County, California. Then Mile High in Denver, Colorado. And then 
then the thing kind of got shut down by the government because they thought it was a pyramid scheme. <laughs> so that was the end of that project. And then, and then he was uh, invited to teach in Davis, California, brewing engineering, but at the same time started working with a group in Monterey, Mexico. We went to Monterey, Mexico for a year and a half to two years where he put in the first two brew pubs in Monterey, Mexico. And that was a fabulous experience. We loved that. Did you take your kids with you then? Or, or were they, no, by uh, then they were in university. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so and you're... so they came to visit us. Oh. <laughs> uh, but we didn't, and my one daughter, the one who lives in London, she helped me drive back to uh, Bellingham when the project was finished. Um, but we then looked at Seattle, and we moved to Seattle. I got a job, and we'll, we tried to work on something in Seattle, but that didn't work either. And um, he start, But he did start working with a group in Istanbul, Turkey. And so while we were in Seattle, he worked with Istanbul to get the first brew pub going in Turkey. And uh, when it was time to set it up, they said, would you like to come? We would love for you to come and set the brewery up. So we actually, I quit my job and we went to Istanbul the first time. And we were there about five and a half months um, setting up that pub and it was fabulous experience. And then we came back and then we were supposed to be doing a project. I'm telling you the long story, no, so you this can cut great. what you want. <laughs> when, when you're 130 years old, yeah, you have a lot of stories. So we were supposed to do a project resurrecting the Dubuque Star in Dubuque, Iowa. Well, we went to Dubuque, and that was like quite a project, and there was no way that was really happening. My sister-in-law <laughs> used to live in Dubuque. Oh, really? She's got a T-shirt. It's uh, Dubuque, <laughs> where, where you party till you puke. I don't know if you can verify that. It's that, a very Midwest type of approach. <laughs> yeah. it, was as foreign, it was as foreign to us as Istanbul to be in Dubuque, and that was the thing about Dubuque. Um, but, but it was sweet. Uh, it didn't happen. And we went to Tucson, Arizona to try to get something going. We'll continue to work with the Istanbul people all this time, you know, over the internet. He actually took a couple of trips back to Istanbul to help them through some issues they were having. And then they said, well, we want to do a craft brewery. So this is a three-year project. We'd love for you to come out and help us build this brewery. So we talked about it, and, and we decided that we enjoyed it so much the first time. We're going to go back. Meanwhile, we'd rented our house here in, ba in uh, Bellingham out, you know, already for several years, and we just kept running it. And we went to Istanbul. He started the um, uh, brewery there, and it was a great experience, but it did change from what originally was intended. So after the three years were up, we said, let's go back and let's do our own brewery. And that's when we came back to Bellingham to the to house we had for like 15 years. And we found this site. And um, Will can tell you stories about that, because uh, which led us to doing uh, the European-style beers. But that's what we decided, and um, we were fine. We opened in late July uh, 2008, but the financial crisis happened oh, yeah. in September 2008. And it really hit Bellingham very hard. 
and all of a sudden, we had no people in our restaurant. So we had to think, what are we going to do to keep us going? Yeah. Uh, this is when Josh Freem was working with us. Yeah. And uh, we got uh, Josh to go down. And, well, actually, it was um, Don Webb that came up and bought our beer for um, his place, Naked City. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And because he knew us from our Kemper days. <clears throat> and so he, with that, it made us think, oh, that's where our market is. It's Seattle. So we started taking the beer down and selling it there. And um, we got to September 2009, and we entered the Great American Beer Festival, and we won Brew Pub of the Year, but it was all locker beers. First time? In 2009. Yeah. First time we entered, but the first time the festival ever gave the award to someone that had done all lagers. No ales. Awesome. So that was really a lovely surprise. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> then, you know, we just kept working on it, working on it, and uh, here we are today. Yeah, that's great. So, um, kind of the history. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of time in that, right? So going, going back to like 84, right. I, I mean, I was, I was, where were you? I was 10 years old and, and 6,000 miles away, right? So like, I, didn't try, I didn't try your stuff then. Uh, but Jay in our team did. Like, oh, really? Yeah, he said he That's went to nice. some, um, or 89 it may have been, he said he went to a, a, an Oktoberfest festival that you Oh, had. yes, we were famous for that yeah. at Kemper. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was very fun. When you, when you started there, was it predominantly ales, like British ales? Or how, how did no. you... No, um, it, it was a combination. And um, I, I've always loved uh, the well-made lager beers, so do it uh, as far as continuing. But the variety of beers, you know, to me, variety of beer is wonderful. It's a food, uh, well, it's a beverage food, but the point is variety. You might have like one thing, more power to you, but to not experiment is to just really, you know, you know, just, uh, just too limiting for you, uh, yeah. at least for myself. And, and so that's what we were doing at that time. And it was, I think, largely loggers, uh, I don't know the percentages, but I think probably uh, mostly lager beers. Now the difference then and now, now though is when we when we came back to start Chuckanut in two thousand and eight, and by the way, as Mario said, we were in Istanbul. So when we came back after several years, we you know we were kind of ignorant as far as what was happening, as far as the business climate and the potential <laughs> financial collapse. Oh, that's a, another good lesson. But when we did come back to start our own brewery. Uh, I went to a craft conference, a craft brewing conference the year before we started, and the hop dealers I was working with over the years, they give me an, uh, um, they, they seemed to suggest that they didn't want to sell me any hops. That was a time of the hop industry as far as a hop shortage was the wording given to, given to me. So at that point then, they weren't, wanting to sell us hops and so we we could not make you know reasonably the american style beers or english style beers how however by being overseas for several years i knew where to get hops so if if they weren't going to sell hops to me well fine but i knew where to get hops and that's a lot that's a a big reason why our beers these days are predominantly lagers is that well we were going going to do 
more of a diverse uh, product line, but uh, we couldn't get the hops. Now that things have changed, and with uh, Chuck and Nut success, uh, it's no problem for me getting hops. I bet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we get the hops free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you you don't go back on on friends and uh, and associations, largely friends that you've had you know relate developed relationships over the years, and plus to go home and have some of the best lager beer in the world. That's a pretty good approach to life. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I hear you. With, <laughs> so, um, so the hop shortage was one piece in there, but like raw, raw materials, like just mall and hops, right? And well, yeast from '84 well, to now must be very. Oh, well, it is very. Okay, yeast. You know, when I when I got into brewing in the '80s and uh, and over the years. Um, there were no yeast suppliers, and so my original yeast, for example, came from London, England, National Collection of Yeast Cultures, and and, and these were just it was just a slant though. So every every uh, yeast yeast uh, I used, I had to propagate it up from slants and look at the various generations and such. And also going overseas, largely you have to do the propagation from slants because they're, you know, whether Mexico or you know, Istanbul or yeah. elsewhere, uh, they usually don't have uh, yeast, yeast um, uh, suppliers like today. Now we work with the yeast supplier, and so it's, it makes life easier. But up until uh, up until we moved back for Chuckanut, so for the first 20, 25 years, I had to always propagate yeast up from slants and work from that. So with that, you kind of have an idea of, of, of yeast demands. Yeah, and um, Will can tell you stories about um, when we were in, Mex was it in Mexico. Yeah. He worked with, the Monterrey is the home of where Cuatamac Brewery is, the really big brewery. And um, he worked with those brewers. And actually, when we had the Thomas Kemper and we had some issues, it was the Rainier brewers that were yeah. so sweet to Will and really took them under their wing and kind of helped them through um, this big issue we had, which was related to the yeast. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he he's learned from a lot of the big brewers as well, just because a brewer is... A brewer, no matter who you work for, they care about the beer, I think. Yeah, and this is a thing, you know, so going around, you know, the, in the beer business, it's the brewers. And as Mari's saying, when, you know, many years ago at Thomas Kemper, we, we had an issue with, with a bacteria called Enterobacitur. And that uh, uh, really destroyed so much beer. But technically, as far as, as, as our, you know, how we were taking samples and sensing, it didn't make sense that that would exist. So that was a puzzling situation. But with the help of the Rainier Brewers, they came over and they said, yeah, this is this is what you have most definitely. And, uh, and, 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 you know, your results, you know, the sampling for whatever, you know, the technique, no, they, they were, they were false. So now I know probably more about enterobacitur than most brewers, I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah. But it goes back to the brewers. And with me, in, in, the, you know, in the group of brewers, so whether I go to MBA meetings and such, brewers want to get along, and they should. They should. They should transfer understanding and, and knowledge for our industry. Uh, I, you know, it's a few stories. Like when, I, when we were back on the East Coast, I was with MBAA Philadelphia. 
And and this was before craft brewers were really starting. And so I used to go early nineties. Yeah, the NBA meetings, and each meeting consists about twelve or fifteen brewers at District Philly. I was the only craft brewer in attendance at those NBA meetings. Now you really, you know, now especially Pacific Northwest where there are hundreds, you you won't find a big brewer you know representing so often. But I used to walk into these meetings and these brewers, you know, they would just take me under their arm. They were so helpful. You know, they wanted to talk the business of beer, the technology, the science, the language of beer. That was wonderful. And and we have to carry on with that. And and because yeah. it, it makes it makes us all better and it certainly makes our business better. And our beer better, the yep. bottom line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that is actually what happened when we came here. We were only one of two breweries when we started and um, it was very value. challenging. Boundary, it was yeah. very, very challenging. I'm just going to say it was challenging because people did not understand what we were doing. They weren't interested in what we were doing, and they weren't being adventurous. Uh, so that was hard for us. But when the third brewery opened, it was like a pressure relief valve. Oops, went off. <laughs> and... Um, uh, all of a sudden people realize they don't always have to go to the same brewery. They don't always have to drink the same kind of beer. One night you might want this kind of beer, one night you might want that kind of beer. It's not like, uh, you know, there's only one beer in the world or one style of beer in the world. And that super helped us. Yeah, so that you guys stayed the course when the community wasn't necessarily embracing it straight away. It was it's really impressive. Like, I admire the attention to detail and you know sticking to your guns. You know what's good. Yeah. You want to communicate that to people. What part of was like education uh, a piece of this? Were you trying to introduce more people to this style? Of course. I mean, we we like a lot of different kinds of beers. And we, after living in these big cities and brewing the beer, Monterey is a big city. Istanbul is a huge city. And, you know, we'd gotten kind of used to that. And, and we, even though Bellingham is small, it has the impression that it's a very adventurous city. But what we were finding was... They weren't so adventurous, and it really kind of upset us. But we did have our loyal people. We did stick to what we did. We did it the best we could possibly do. So we knew we had a great product, and it was just a matter of when people were going to wake up to, to, or you know, find their way here. What we did find was, especially in the summers, people from out of town would bring their Bellingham relative here in order to try our beer because they had heard of our beer, uh, you know. So I have to say it was about the first, you know, maybe even six or seven years that we somewhat struggled through. And if and talk about creativity earlier, we were talking about creativity and all. And I think that had we just given up, well, we would have closed. There's no other restaurants open, or very few restaurants open, that opened when we opened in late 2008 before the crisis. Yeah. 
Yeah. They've all closed. Let, let me also, yeah. you know, add another story that that you know really addresses your question, and and a lot of it goes to the nature, the nature and where the beer business is. And when we started Thomas Kemper in the 1980s, Mari used to go go around to accounts, uh, t- taverns and such, and she would take samples of our beer. This was before the craft brewery movement really, really took hold. And so we were making beers, Vienna lagers and such, that had color in them. We were making beers that were very different from mainstream American lagers. That was the point. And so the accounts, they had an, you know, they, they had an issue with that because it was different. Okay, now let's fast That's forward over. 15, 20 years, essentially in the same area, region, let's say, in Bellingham. So when we opened the beers here, we were making lager beers again. And what happened, though, is we had difficulty because we were not making bizarre beers. Or IPAs. Yeah, yeah. That was an issue. People didn't like us because, want, or did not want to support us because we weren't in the mainstream of what the perception of craft beer was. So we're talking about a situation, you know, and once again, it has to do with the beer market and where it is. Is it going to change? Of course, everything changes. Yeah, now everything we're moving changing, into so lagers wonderful. more. But, right. but you see, the point is the market changed all of 15 years from a point of complete, you know, wonder bread to complete bizarre in your face <laughs> beer. And you have to fit in? Well, if you always want to be a flag and flop in the wind, I guess so. Uh, yeah, it, and what happened? Back now, though, People, to, yeah, yeah, now it's moving extreme. to the Pilsners. Everybody, yeah. you know, you saw the numbers at GABF this year. Yeah. Pilsner's one of the huge categories, actually. Here we were, you know, in 2008, making the Pilsner, uh, Vienna Lager, the, um, you know, all the golden beers that we love so much, and, and people weren't even willing to try it. They'd come in, we didn't have an IPA on tap, they'd walk out the door. That's what it was like. We did not see the love here in Bellingham. There were even articles written about it. But we stayed. We, you know, we tried our best. I'd sit in the office, get on my knees, and pray that (laughs) one of those cars going down the road was going to stop in and have a good lunch because we make great food (laughs) and drink one of our delicious beers. But it was a, a lot of, you know... Just holding to the idea that it was going to catch on at some point. So with them, um, so lots of different cities, lots of different uh, populations that are in different places on their craft beer sort of journey. Yeah. So did how how were the lineups of beers different, like from in- Istanbul to Monterey? Oh, it, to they were the same. Well, no, they might have had a same, but no, you're talking about what the market is, and you're yeah. talking about whether Istanbul, you're talking about Mexico, what, you know, you, uh, what, Pacific East Northwest, California, Coast. East Coast. And how you fit in as a exactly. crop brewery. Well, you have to understand, it is very, very different. Why is it different? Well, perceptions, and perceptions can have a lot, they are largely, largely, I want to say, due to marketing. So where you are, you have to look at, you know, where, you know, what is the percent, like in the Pacific Northwest and trying to, trying to be very hop forward or whatever. And 
And that was the market. You go to Mexico, Istanbul, they have no idea what those things are, what those beers are. They're used to mainstream beers. Heineken, of course, or Mexican yeah. mainstream lagers, of or course. Or German-style yeah. beers. Yeah, so, so you, you have those considerations. And then you have places in between. So, yeah, you really have to understand and respect the market. It's kind of like the, the, you know, the, the excise tax situation as far as, as far as state taxes. I know. seems like a strange thing. No. There are 50 states, and so there are 50 laws dealing with excise taxes in these states. And, that, and, and the market for beers, you know, I would submit it would be similar. Did, did you... Like in in Monterey, did you have more of a lager lineup there? In in, in yeah, the I, I, I I think so. Now the one thing, um, Adam, is that our beers the one yeah that, that's more of a lager lineup, but you know our beers and how we've gone over the years, um, the production of beers I do it's a, it's it, the process and the and the technique or technology behind it. All of our beers are brilliant, brilliant, and the reason being here is that is that is that the beers that come afterwards, they cannot assume solids or haze or anything because that's a problem. So we make ales and lagers brilliant. And, that, and we understand the technology and necessities of, 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 of what is involved in doing that so. So we have to have kind of a consistent production scheme. So when you talk ales and lagers, there are classical differences as far as styles and such, as far as hops, as far as, you know, obviously the byproducts of fermentation. Yeah, those are the difference there. Production conditions, of, of course. We'll make different beers. Did I say you want different beers? <laughs> of course, that's <laughs> yeah, the yeah. beauty behind it. Yeah. But you can't fool around too much within that. So we have kind of a set pattern in, in what we do. So our ales are finely finished too yeah. and, and, and for that reason but yeah and they were like that in in Mexico but they did tend um, you know because you have to remember the Mexican brewers were Germans we have Dos Equis, we have yeah. dark beers down there and so uh, the Mexicans were very open to trying the different colors of beers uh, but I think mostly it was the golden beers that were m m more popular but they tend also to go towards the more delicate flavors um, I think they might have sensitive palates or something that they they tend towards that um, and so they were very similar to what we will had made at um, in the United States too um, East Coast was interesting because East Coast, they knew the European beers. And I don't know if it's because it was closer to Europe or what, but they also went towards, I, can, I remember people like talking in um, Dock Street about Will's Bach beer, you know, that, that was in like 1990. 91, you know, and they knew those beers. They knew the Mertz and they knew all those European style beers. But um, here on the West Coast wasn't necessarily as um, educated about those particular styles. They were much more into doing ales. Like I remember real ales was like a major yeah. thing. We went to Camera once, you know, uh, in London, and it was really nice. But 
uh, I remember the beer that won that camera was a lighter beer, you know? So it's, like <laughs> it's <a> trend. very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so, so the process, you said about the process to get brilliant yeah. beers, right? That, how did you build that up over time? Because that's a, that's a learning process, it's a exactly. journey, right? So yeah, no, it, it is, and it's a very, you know, the techni technical consideration. And I, got, I have to say, uh, you know, once again, I'm a chemical engineer. I went through the first UC Davis Master Brewers program, Siebel, the whole thing. And so that's my approach. Uh, I'm not very pleasant to look at it, so I, it has to be the technology. <laughs> but the other thing is is that in the early, um, well, in the 1980s, I, I, I read papers by Professor Ludwig Nartzis, and most people don't know him. Uh, when we no, met Professor no. Nartzis a couple of times, both times, you know, the respect I have for him, I told him we're probably his biggest proponent uh, around the world. Well, he was the head of Vine Stefan for many years, Master Brewers uh, at, at um, Lohenbrown Munich. But the beauty of what he did was he wrote practical papers, practical papers on how you do certain things for lager production, addressing clarity, brilliance, and what are the factors behind solids and, and such, and minimizing those, looking at extracting the positive flavors, but not the negative flavors. So virtually everything I read from Narcissus made sense, and so that's the approach I use. So ask me how we do it, I would suggest you read Narcissus. So that was from the mid '90s, right? You, you read you exactly, you read yeah. '90s yeah. or '80s? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think you probably in the latter eight, later '80s, yeah. I started to read Nartsis, and he's since retired. He's he's in his '90s now, and so he's retired oh, twenty oh, he, years he's ago. Done that. We, we, actually, <laughs> yeah. we actually met him once. Uh, he's just a little man, and he um, he says to me, uh, "My humble card." And I'm like, whoa, this guy is like famous. <laughs> and he's telling me about his humble card. His business card. It, it, it's yeah, like it's business it, from card. his inkjet. Because I was thinking, if, if you've got to propagate yeast from plates, yeah. you know, yeast management is going to be such a core part of your business from early on. Whereas like when we started, I could get pitches yeah, very easily yeah, no, it, per batch. Exactly. You know. So... And yeast becomes a lot more of a valuable commodity if you've got to spend. Yeah, no, it is. It is a value, and and uh, uh, you know, so you know, talk, people talk in terms of, oh, I can make a recipe. If you're any kind of competent, non-competent brewer, you can come up with a recipe. That's nothing, you know. To you know, anybody can come up with a recipe. It's it's from start to finish, and and you know, how many steps are in brewing. 10, 50, 100, I don't know. But it starts from your raw materials to your finishing. And by the way, it also includes packaging. <laughs> That's yeah, a key, yeah, yeah. key thing there. And so you look at the yeast, where that's involved, and, and, and how it contributes to what is going on during the process. Yeah, you have to understand you know, the health, the vitality of your yeast. What's going on? Because that, you know, besides the raw materials, the, the yeast is what really determines your byproducts, your your flavors, your esters, uh, you know, other other flavors. Oh, of course there are there are hop hop issues too for flavor, but yeast no. And and the difficulty of the yeast is that 
While it contributes a positive flavor, it can so, so, so easily contribute negative flavors. This is one thing I, I see with a lot of beers, and I, th I would think that maybe a lot of people are copying out and saying, I make bitter beers, and that's the style I do. No, you have what's referred to as a yeast bite. In other words, you have autolyzed yeast. You have yeast flavor. You taste yeast that's settled out. Is that the flavor you want? No, no. Oh. If, yeah, if we, start, if we start talking in terms of we want these desired flavor from autolysis and other organic material, let's start experimenting more. Let's throw dead cats and dogs in and birds, and maybe we can have flavors that would be good. I don't think so, but that's where it's at. Well, wasn't part of what you learned from those Rainier guys was washing the yeast? Well, yeah, we don't wash yeast anymore, but, but at a point, yeah, Heilemann... Now, at that time, they were part of Heilman. And so with the, with the bacteria issue, we w did wash, uh, and we wash every every pitch because their corporate policy was to wash every pitch too. Well, well, over the years, we reduced that, um, but washing can be very, very helpful. I haven't washed yeast in years, though. Why? Because our, our system is tight enough and the... Uh, and it doesn't do it... You know, it kills bacteria, but it can also be negative as far as the, as far as the yeast you know and and for example if we throw you in acid you probably won't respond well either <laughs> it'll be very clean though <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was when we were driving up i was just um chatting with with matt and it, it's kind of interesting to me that i looked at in jbf and the, the winners around hoppy beer categories mm. And there was uh, like a, there's a homogenization taking place in that most of the winners in, in say IPA, double IPA, they don't have many specialty grains in, in the, in the malt bills. Yeah. So like caramel's coming out. Yeah. And if not, in every one, I didn't see caramel in there. Um, and then if you look at the hop profiles, there's only about seven different hops wow. being used in most of these beers, right? Yeah. So there's a, like about four different malts uh -huh. and then seven different yeah. hops. So then you're coming back to process, right? That's the difference between a winner and out of 200 entries and a non-winner. And then it made me think, well, that's like lager, right? That, that essentially it's a lot about process rather than ingredient yes. and recipe design because yeah. that's relatively easy. And, and also, you know, you're just addressing the, the, uh, um, the malt bill and the approach to that. And, and, you know, I got to go back, beer, they're positive and negative flavors. The idea is you get rid of the negative flavors and you work with the positive. And with the malt bill, what I'm getting at is, is that the specialty malt, we really do address these quite a bit. And, for example, we make a, a, a German dark beer called a Dunkel, and that's won World Beer Cup, gold, you know, GABF gold several times. The we used to make uh, most of our beers. We work with Weirman malt from Germany for these, you know, classical lager beers. But for the Dunkel, what make and I'm going to give you something very interesting. The Dunkel, what makes it special is we work with a company, uh, South American malting company called Patagonia. Do you use them? Uh, we do don't you, use have them. Have you tried their Yeah, but specifically, they they do uh, uh, two dark malts. And I think they're superior, they're softer in flavor than the comparable dark malts from Weirman. So I think that makes beer smoother and better. 
so it's working with yeah. Is it done to terroir to malts? Uh, well, like, even you know, what's that? Is it terroir to malts? Yeah, yeah terroir. exactly, exactly, exactly. And you talk terroir, Lord. Well, let's talk hops. Gee, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, yeah. that's 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 the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, because actually, our hops mostly come from Germany and England. They aren't American hops. Yeah. We work with a hop dealer whose family has been dealing hops for over 150 years. So. They kind of know, you know, what to get and what, what's good, and he gets reports all the time on it. But I was um, going to go back to the uh, malt because now uh, the Vienna malt, um, instead of just using the Vienna, you're using a Barca, is that right? Yeah, Barca malt, Barca, Barca Vienna in particular, also? because I once again, I think it's, it's a bit smoother flavor uh, than regular... Um, Vienna malt, yeah. So, and those those things come and go too. I mean, there was a period where the Weirman malts weren't working well for us, so we moved to uh, malt Europe, and then uh, theirs all of a sudden didn't work well for us. So then we moved back to Weirman, and it was doing well. Then we did Skagit Valley malts, and at first it was okay, and then it progressively didn't work for us. So we've kind of nixed using those. So. We've tried a lot, proximity malt, you know, they all are a little bit different and whether they work with for you, for your style of beer or not is the question. And unless you just, you know, you have to experiment with it to see. So, um, we talked about packaging in terms mm -hmm. of the process and, yeah. you know, yeah, we, we can and, and, and bottle we as well. Can, yeah. I know. Yeah. How do you like the canning? We've dialed it in nicely, actually. Oh, but it's a very manual process. So like, oh, it's, it it's about... We're very fortunate to have a great team that really Good. has yeah. got it All hands dialed on deck. in. Yeah, we. Uh, <laughs> well, we um, uh, a brewery that was looking at starting canning uh, came down and looked at four different breweries and did tests on DO and everything, uh -huh. and a couple of wild gooses, which is what we have, and couple of rotaries, you know, the multi-million dollar rotaries, <coughs> we had some of the best DO out of all of those. So that's yeah. kind of wow, a nice spot really to be. Good. And I, I can't take any credit, my, my whole team. But <laughs> um, we, we were talking in the car that we'd love to get your Pilsner in six packs. So uh, <laughs> oh, <there> you <laughs> are you looking yeah. at packaging Something. at all? Well, uh, we are starting we, to. Yeah, no, we, you know, the, the thing is, uh, uh is owned wholly by Mari and myself and through our years, once again, we don't have very much money. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working, for example, with Crohn's for projects overseas. And from my way of thinking, they're, they're, they're at the top of the game with packaging. We can't afford them. That's so ask, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's the thing. Now, as we go forward and w it's g becoming more positive as far as the, you know, what we want to do, the potential of packaging, you know, we have the space, we have acres that we can expand in exactly. and the idea is for yeah. packaging. But to uh, go from a brewery to packaging, you know, so from the get-go, you double your you double your work area or your floor yeah. space for, for et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's a matter of you know getting the facility, and 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 we will do that. But right now, the other th problem with chucking it is, the other problem is we're doing well. The demand <laughs> is there. <laughs> nice problem, yeah, yeah. We can't with the draft beer. So for us to package beer, where's the so beer going to yeah. come from? 
is it going to come from our present account? That doesn't make yeah, sense. Don't do that. So as we grow and, you know, we will get a situation, and, and we've been addressing it um, uh, to get packaged beer. Uh, right now we have a little machine that, that we have beer for, you know, the restaurant and all. So oh. if nothing else, as we grow, we, you know, we can, we can put that down there and have some packaged beer. Yeah. But not right now. And and the thing is with our beer, our beer, you know, I I, I heard I saw something. Uh, Chuck and I has a problem because their their beers like a china doll. They're so it's so fine with that, and and that was that was that was discussed kind of in a negative sense. I thought, but I thought, well, that makes sense when we talk packaging. Packaging does nothing to help your beer. That's a given. The beer comes to the packaging, and it's in it's that state. And packaging can only hurt, hurt your beer. Yeah. So if you have a product that's very fragile, like most chuck, like virtually all chucking up beers, oxygen in particular, issues with packaging. No, they will come out uh, more, more, more so than a lot of beers that are presently packaged. But what's interesting is that this whole packaging thing—it's changed. So quickly, oh, you know, over the past, I'd say, five years, that equipment has gotten better. It's kind of like when we started Thomas Kemper in 1984, we were just using the old dairy equipment. And Will had to design, he actually designed one of the first unit tanks at JB Northwest. So, you know, we didn't have that equipment at the beginning. It took a long time to get to where we are now with the better equipment for a small brewery and again with better canners and better bottling machines he actually worked with Dave Maheen on that bottling machine at the beginning so um, you know it's it's all a matter of uh, just slowly making our way to getting the equipment we need to help our product uh, you know go on to the next steps so so you I think over the years we can look forward to even better beer. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you have two breweries now, right? Yeah, so the production in Skagit, and then this one here is mostly um, the uh, ales and the more one-off type beers because it's a 10-barrel system, whereas the one in Skagit is a 20-barrel. So how has that been like managing two spaces that are quite a distance oh, apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but it's only a half hour or 25 minutes yeah. to a half hour apart. But we're so the hardest part is getting the food to them. Having the brew pub here so, uh, so yeah, they, they expect the food. food. <laughs> yeah. So brews down the even though part. there's no restaurant they expect food. <laughs> yeah. so. <laughs> That's okay. We want a good working yeah, environment. Yeah, we do it because yeah. we love them. <laughs> <laughs> That's all going well. Going well. I, I, I see you're brewing like, over, like almost three times as much there as, as here. Is that, is yeah, that right? Yeah, no, and, and um, three or four, whatever. Yeah, so it, we're transitioning production more so down there because the potential is there. We, we, we're working with the Port of Skagit, and, and right now we, we lease... It's over an acre. By the way, we only lease it. We have a 50-year lease. Uh, they can't sell the land by law because it's given to them, so they can only lease. Uh, so we have a 50-year lease yeah. with the port, and we have adjacent first right of refusal of a couple Another more. Another two and a half acres. Yeah. yeah. So we have that yeah, that capability of um, of expanding. Oh, that's yeah. great. And that's it's great. going to excite 
very well there. And yeah. yeah. Although it is in the middle of nowhere and we don't have that many people stopping in, you know, to drink beer, but um, it is a beautiful place to our, um, the Skagit Valley is really pretty. Especially when the tulips are, are in bloom. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bulbs. So, um, there's a number, a number of things that you've been like responsible for in in the Northwest in terms of beer. Don't blame as, me. As a, no, 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 in a good way. In a good. Way, right? <laughs> well, like, if, if you've helped design the Mahine, right? You've, yeah. You've come up with one of the first conical designs. Yeah. Um, I was. That was great to hear because I I was thinking predominantly in terms of people, right? So like, Josh Josh, oh, Josh Freem, um, yeah. Kevin, Kevin Davey. Davey. So like, it must be humbling. It must feel good to know that you're actually, helping progress. Actually, we were so excited for Don at Silver City yeah. because he worked for Thomas Kemper. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and he relates yeah. to us as his inspiration for getting into the brewing field. I'm sure sometimes yeah. he cusses us and sometimes yeah. he really is excited about it. <laughs> so when we were at the GAVF and he won Mid-Size Brewery of the Year, I think that's what that, it was. Yeah, uh, yeah. We were all so excited for him. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But that sort of shows what we're talking about community, right, in terms yeah. of brewers, and that's like the ultimate yeah. Um, yeah. It really recognition is a, of that. Yeah, I th uh, yeah, going back, it's so important to get along with brewers and, and you know, and, and, and people in your business. What is the alternative? Being an asshole? <laughs> okay. Who wants Will, to be an asshole? Will always talks about Carlsberg, uh, the Carlsberg Brewery, you know, and how they, um, they did oh. a lot of research. And, you know, we got the pH idea. Wasn't it that? No. Um, oh, what was the, it? Um, in the early 1900s, their, their head of, head of te uh, laboratory, what, his name was Soren Sorensen. He developed the concept of pH. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Nobel Peace, uh, no, Nobel uh, Science Prize, excuse me. You know, go on. <laughs> anyway, he won the Nobel Prize for the concept of pH. Carlsberg Laboratories at that time had a policy that if we come across any kind of innovation, any kind of knowledge, anything that can assist people and specifically the brewing industry, it should be available to the brewing industry. So that was their approach. And that's, you know, that's, you know. Actually, I think, yeah, that's great. That, talk actually, about today. That, and, yeah. that is a thing because then when we did open Thomas Kemper, I remember the uh, experimental Coors Brewers came yeah. out and visited us specifically. And isn't that how we met Odell? Or Odell came out. Yeah, well, Doug, because before he was starting to, his, his brewery, brewery, so he came he in came and out. talked to us. He said to us when we visited him several years ago, he will never forget that Will had invited him into the brewery, told him everything he knew, and, you know, shared his knowledge. And so now, Doug always will meet with young brewers if they're interested and talk to them about what they're doing. And I just, I, I didn't realize we had made such an effect, you know, on the, on the industry as little as it could be. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, someone like that or these other brewers that used to come and visit with Will and Will would always share his information, mostly out of excitement for learning. Yeah, yeah, that was. Where do you see um, where do you see lager going in the next three to five years or so? Um, As a category, uh, 
Well, I, I think it will grow. It certainly should not decline because, because um, um, the nature of well-made lager beers, drinkability, that's a key thing. So, so you should not fight drinking a beer. It should not be a contest to drink a beer. It should go down easy. And, and at the end of it, they say, whoa, I'll have another one. Oh, that's the idea of a good lager. And, and that's, a, you know, that's a case. So as people are more in tune with, with, within the beer, in beer market or whatnot, as they drink these beers, if you like the beer, drink it. And, and a lot, you know, then it goes down to the individual, what an individual likes or dislikes. And that, there's a science involved in that, why one person will like something and another person will not. So we can only generalize as far as the market styles, but a drinkable lager, whoa, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've seen the devil IPA sort of is it move, like softening. Down? Is yeah. it really? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. So we're, we're seeing it, that. It, it should always be around. You know, I, that's not my... That's not my preference because, first of all, you know, as I talked about, how a lot of these are made, sometimes they're a cop-out. If they're truly well-made and if it's truly a hop-based thing, that can be fine. However, you know, my, my perception, you know, the taste bud, I, I'm kind of a hypersensitive sort as, as opposed to non-sensitive, meaning I pick things up so, e so easily and, um, and, and consequently uh, they're, they're usually over the top for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think of the... Well, I, 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 I kind of said how the, I was seeing a, a move towards processing IPAs. Uh -huh. So I think they're becoming more delicate. Uh -huh. like, um, and if you... It's, and it's more process-driven. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and if you do can brew a good lager, you should be able to brew a good IPA. Exactly, yes. yeah. As we start stripping out all of these other adjuncts and, and, and the... Well, not adjuncts, specialty malts. Yeah. And um, the perception of bitterness is more... S we used to just blast everybody's palates out, right? Right. And so you couldn't then get what a true soft round bitterness really yeah. should be. Yeah. And I think we're, so I think we're moving in the right direction. I can see okay. lager and IPA in the same direction. Yeah. But that whole thing, like if you think about an account, uh, um, a bar or something, uh -huh. they want somebody to be able to have that second beer, not to have one beer That's right. and be exactly. absolutely destroyed palate-wise and yeah. ABV-wise. Right. So it goes back to what beer was originally, I, I think. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I think we're on a good trajectory. Well, and you know, you're, you're, the word you're using in processing for that, and, and I, I agree with that, as, as people are more involved in understanding than knowledgeable, they're better at the processing. And, and an analogy is a, a chef. You know, everybody has a, a sense, well, if you have better raw materials, of course, but otherwise it's a process, it's a technique. Do you understand what's involved and what has to be done? What are the factors along with that? That's processing. And as a brewer, once you know, brewers, you know, once again, we have the same raw materials essentially. Yeah. So what makes the difference? It's the processing. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, what's the future for Chuckanut? 
that's my my last question, really. Well, hopefully we'll get to the cans and the bombs. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we <laughs> to have me, to. that's what I see. But it's gonna, <laughs> it might be a, you know a little yeah. bit of time, yeah. but um, that is that's in the cards for us for sure. And and you know we are constantly exploring too, and our brewers as well with tasting other beers that might um, you know spark creativity within us. I don't know, but we have been doing like our single hop uh, lager series, which has been very exciting. Um, that's taking one specific um, hop and using it in our basic lager recipe to uh, so that we could learn more about that specific hop and how it tastes. The other one we've done is with the Citra Leaf Pilsner. We're deciding that we, we love Pilsners, so we're going to make all these different Pilsners. So we made the Mediterranean Pilsner. We're going to do an Italian-style Pilsner. We've got the um, Citra Leaf Pilsner. So we're sort of exploring the whole Pilsner realm. And, um, and then we are working on getting back to some more basic ales that we'd like to uh, start developing. We haven't gotten there yet because we're exploring the yeast we might want to use for that. Um, but we, those are the areas that we're actually looking to expand into. Great. Sure. Great. Well, thanks for your time. Okay. Well, thank gosh, you, thanks Adam. so thank much. Yeah, it was really <laughs> fun. Cheers. So that hour went quicker than anything. It felt like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun conversation. What was interesting for me is that I knew that Will and Mari had so much history in craft beer in, in the Northwest and in in the United States in terms of recognition. Um, but, uh, yeah, so from Thomas Kemper Brewing opening in the 80s and, and the original craft wave to now, whatever wave we're going to call ourselves right right now, it's he's been through a lot. And from when, when he started, thinking that he was the only craft brewery in his um, industry MBA meetings, it's, it's kind of, it's a totally different lifetime in terms of craft beer. In terms of, the amount of breweries that he's been involved in, the amount of experience he's had, it's, has to be very unique in in craft. And it was really interesting learning about um, the different styles and the different um, challenges of working in different different countries. Um, we, as a as a brewer, brewery that opened in 2012, uh, you have to be careful not to take for granted the benefits we have of those that have come before us. So to think about the struggles of managing yeast when it came from the UK and having to propagate it up, um, whereas now we can put an order in and it arrived the next day. It's, it's, it's night and day difference. Yeah, we, we have to be thankful to people like Will and Mari who've kind of helped build the industry into what we have today. You know, we, we stand on their backs. And in, in, yeah, and in terms of like ingredient selection and development, but also in terms of equipment. So for me, I wasn't aware that Will had worked on some of the earliest uh, Unitank designs. And for, the, for people who don't know what they are, there's like every brewery that you go into now, you'll see these conical tanks. So they're cylindrical with a cone at the bottom. And uh, that's just the way that U.S. brewers uh, harvest yeast, actually, that design. The yeast will sink to the bottom, and then you can kind of suck it out from the bottom of the tank in, in this conical design. But to see that he he's had a part in the evolution of every single brewery. The other thing that, that's a very physical and tangible thing, that if you go in any brewery, you'll see those things everywhere. Like that, That's um, 
synonymous with craft beer, but also um, a mahin. So mahin was a is a bottling machine that almost every brewery um, that bottles has one of those. Every small brewery, um, we do. We we have one. We've been bottling on on that um, same system since 2013. So to think that that didn't exist, we may not have been out of bottle, and then we may not have been where we are today. So it's it's crazy. Yeah, and another thing to think about and really respect about Will and Mari in terms of what they've given to the industry. So they've given us um, tank designs and bottling lines, but they've also homegrown some of the best brewers in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. Uh, Josh Freem, uh, for one. Um, a lot of the people who make great lagers around the Northwest, not exclusively, but a lot of them learn their trade from uh, from Will. and. So those kind of offshoots that he's thrown into the the Northwest brewing scene is just a testament to the kind of people they are. Yeah, um, I always talk about beer being part art, part science. And um, the way I see beer is, is science is the guardrails that the art plays in between. It's like, um, and the art is the gray that we're, we're kind of managing and and developing and 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 working with but the science is like yeah you can't push it this far or that far but it's interesting with will he's very obviously he is a scientist right so he takes a very scientific approach he's shown me some of his um his uh, systems that uh he drops tanks by fractions of um degrees fahrenheit over time and you can see where the system is trying to get the temperature of a tank to and where it actually does and there'll be this blip on there and it looks massive but it's like 0.5 degrees fahrenheit for like a matter of minutes because of the glycol load on the system but like that level of focus is what you need to get uh, brilliant beers you know brilliant clarity not brilliant in the British sense. Well, actually, brilliant in the British sense too, actually. Yeah, yeah. As well. But in both ways. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, you know, lager is um, definitely uh, in in IPAs. You can overload a beer with flavour and cover up maybe some slight uh, process uh, issues, or maybe not issues is too strong a word, but you can you can essentially cover up things in an IPA in certain ways, whereas with fewer malts and fewer like intense flavor profiles, uh, lagers, you're a lot more exposed. The beer is more naked to a large extent. Yeah, the, a lot of people say that you can't hide anything in a lager. Yeah, so which is where the science piece is even more important. And the selection of his raw ingredients, the, the malts and the hops that he does choose. And I was really impressed with the relentlessness he has for finding exactly the ingredients he wants and sourcing those from wherever in the world he needs to get them. Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree. I mean, that's um, that comes with a lot of experience. You know, um, having so many years in the industry, you've made relationships, and you really understand the the level of input that goes behind. Um, behind the, the the product that you're purchasing to make beer from. So like, for example, like malt, you can go and buy a bag of malt easily. There's multiple different maltsters available. And okay, I'll have this one, this one, this one. But you have to remember that it's an agricultural product, right? And so if you start buying the same malt from the same maltster over a period of time, uh, different crop yields are going to impact 
maybe the protein levels, which might impact efficiency in terms of your extract of that malt into sugar. It might impact um, the clarity of, of the f final beer that comes out of that, that malt. Um, it, it's, you really, over time and with experience, you can get to understand these kind of levers and underneath, um, underneath just the uh, sort of shopping list, if you like. Yeah, the recipes for beers aren't static. The Every batch of hops, every batch of malt needs to be analyzed, both from a scientific point of view and then also just kind of a sensory point of view to make sure you're going to make the beer that you want to make. And as you heard in the podcast, he's had to change his malts over time because he's getting away from what he wants his beer to taste like. So it's something to remember for uh, those of you who aren't in the industry that once a great recipe is written for a beer, the story doesn't end. You have to pay attention to each and every batch, each and every load of hops and malts to make sure that you can get that consistency. That's the, the art of the brewing. Yeah, yeah. Which scientific approaches can help with as well. You know? Exactly. <laughs> as, it, as it comes You around. need both. Yeah. So every episode we ask a question of the brewmaster and it kind of follows exactly from what we were just talking about with these minute differences in hops and malts that someone like Will pays attention to and sources them from all over the world. We talked about the terroir of hops and malts. How much of a difference does that really make in the final product from a consumer point of view? Do you think you can taste all those little minute differences? Um, you're asking somebody with a, I have a very strong view on this. <laughs> so, um, um, so the, the let me give you a, an example. I, we could brew a porter uh, that's obviously a malt-forward beer, right? And we can brew a porter um, with three malts, and that's a common number of malts for, for, for a number of porters. Uh, ours has eight, because I designed that recipe as a home brewer to be specific to the style guidelines for competitions, and I felt that, yeah, I could take out maybe one or two, but I'm going to eventually... Is that going to help the beer? No. It's going to help us from a production perspective. And it's not brewing from the glass backwards. I only want to make changes to a recipe if it improves the beer. So um, we have a, a beer that has eight different malts in, but you can make a perfectly good beer maybe with three. But I think the difference would be night and day in terms of texture and complexity of, of the malt profile. Uh, I think if you take that to something that's a, a more naked style, where there's not eight malts in it, maybe uh, like a lager, right? So the strain is so important. The temperature um, um, of fermentation is so important, as we saw, as I, met, as I mentioned earlier, with um, Will's system of controlling uh, fermentation temperature. Um, it is, uh, he's got a very scientific approach on, on that. Um, and in terms of uh, yeast character, in an IPA, a lot of yeast character is enveloped from a hot profile, right? If you don't have a big hot profile sitting on top of a, a pale lager, that ester profile in the yeast is going to come through a lot more. Maybe you've got a little bit of sulfur in there. Uh, maybe you got a little bit of fruitiness from the fermentation profile that you, maybe you didn't want. Maybe it's not quite as rounded as you wanted uh, from, the, from, the, from the yeast character in terms of the mouthfeel. Um, so 
a lot of those things, that, that attention to detail is far more important in a lager than in, in an IPA. So that can work with the, in terms of yeast selection and yeast management and uh, fermentation profile. It can work in terms of what malts you use. So being as close um, as we heard he is to, to, the, to certain malts, that makes sense to me because you've got to have a very, your gray area that you're playing in is maybe constrained a lot because the beer is a lot more naked. Uh, there's got to be a better phrase than using the word naked, but you know what I mean. Exactly. So one thing this all makes me think of is the reason we started this podcast was to talk about great craft producers, not just beer producers, and to explore the things that these people do to go from good to great in what they do. And I think the explanation you just gave and the relentlessness that we've seen in Will's career to minutely improve things by inventing new technology to dial in temperatures to fractions of a degree. That's what it takes to get from good to great. Totally agree. Totally agree. So with that, um, I think we'll wrap up this, this uh, month's, weeks, this one, this edition anyway, <laughs> of the podcast. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I also want to say thank you to Eric Johnson and Quiet Coyote Studio for the music to the show and its production. So until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.